0: what I want us to do to kind of get our hearts and minds around this text is to think of this as a dialogue between someone who is afraid and someone who is willing to honor that fear. Very rarely, especially in Western kind of individualistic culture, do we talk to people about what we're afraid of? Do we share from our hearts like, you know, this is really distressing to me. I know that uh, as a man that's difficult, men don't typically tend to connect deeply about things that we're afraid of or that we're not good at. Uh, But it's something that as I've built up friendships over the years, as I've shared fears with others, uh, it's really been transformative. And I think a lot of you can relate to this. If you're in a small group, if you've been mentored, you know those powerful moments when you really share your fear with someone else. It kind of takes some of the power out of that fear. One of the ways that uh, we've tried to approach this very strange time, at least in our family, and I'm not saying every family needs to do it this way, it's just the way that we've done it in our family, is ever since we started talking about coronavirus, ever since schools kind of went up in the air, we really wanted to try to talk to our kids about it, uh, to even share at times the things that we're not so sure about or the things that we don't know or the fears that we have. And we've tried to frame it in ways that are, you know, positive and encouraging, but trying to be honest with our kids about our fears for them and for the future. So uh, the other week, many of you remember, we found out across uh, the east side that uh, school was going to be fully remote for the big school districts around here. And so that was a big deal in our family and for a lot of families. And so I was talking with our middle daughter about going to kindergarten. So she's going to be heading off to kindergarten this fall somehow we're going to do that online. I'm not quite sure how that's gonna work out, online kindergarten. But I said to her, hey, you know, you're still gonna get to be at school. You're still gonna get to be in a class, but it's gonna be mostly through the computer. We don't really know what's gonna look like. And she kind of thought about it for a minute. And she said, well, I still get to do show and tell. And I love that because the answer is yes, because even with the computer screen, you can still do show and tell. But to name something that could have been this fearful thing, could have been this thing that maybe we kept out of sight for her. I think it would have created more stress and more anxiety for us as parents and potentially for her as she tries to enter into this. So my encouragement as we begin today is to realize that yes, we do live in a fearful time and we do have opportunity to name these fears, to hold them out before God. And when we are in relationship with God, God chooses to honor the way we come to him with our fears. Our fears might be irrational. Our fears might feel crushing at times. I know someone who, uh, when they found out that school was gonna be online, they just had a ton on their plate. It had been a really stressful season in the spring. And so they found out school school's gonna be online in the fall and they just went out to their car, closed the door, rolled up the windows and just cried. And that's a perfectly reasonable reaction to these days. Wherever we are at with our fears, wherever we are at with this sense of we don't know what the future is going to look like, we know that we can come before God, and we know we can say to God, look, this is going to be hard, and I'd love for you to walk with me through this. In a sense, that's what we see God saying to Ananias, I will be with you as you minister to this person that you could not imagine caring for. I will be with you. I will walk with you through your fears and your distress. So I want us to kind of gather our hearts around that as we look at this text this morning, very brief text. How does God respond to Ananias' fears? How does God respond to our fears? The thesis idea is this. God connects our fears and our suffering to a purpose. God connects our fears and our sufferings to a purpose. That is how he carries us through fearful times. And the way we're going to look at this is in three different headings. You can write these down if you're a note taker. We're going to look at the context very briefly, as I mentioned a moment ago. We're going to talk about this tension between honor and influence. And then we're going to talk about preparation. Context, honor, and influence, and preparation. Let's begin with context. So throughout the book of Acts, we've been learning about the early church and there's this nefarious figure, kind of a boogeyman type figure, that keeps popping up. In Acts chapter 7, this figure pops up at the uh, murder of a man named Stephen. This figure pops up again in Acts chapter 8 as a vigilante who's kind of taking justice into his own hands, persecuting the church, chasing down people who aren't right religiously. And we learn uh, this man's name is Saul. And until Acts chapter 9, he's in the background, like he's sneaking up on the church, he's kind of behind us, but now he zooms into the forefront, and we start to see him as a human being. So the beginning of Acts chapter 9, he's riding on the road to Damascus, he is a religious authority whose mission is to stomp out the church, to shut it down, to make it go away. And so he's in a position of power and influence He's surrounded by, we think, maybe a cadre of soldiers, just think like beefy bodyguard types, maybe some you know, retired MMA fighters are sort of surrounding him. And they're on their way to the next destination to try to take out the church. And Saul is completely stripped of all of his power and authority in an instant. He is knocked off his horse by the power of God. He falls to the ground. It's a great sort of dramatic scene he's utterly humiliated. Those beefy bodyguards, they run away. They they make an excuse to not be around him anymore. He has this dialogue with Jesus where Jesus challenges him. So this person that he's not been able to figure out gets inches away from his face in a spiritual sense and says, why are you persecuting me? Why are you doing this? And he has no answer. And he's brought down, not just physically and emotionally, but intellectually. He has no retort to Jesus's argument against him. And then he's abandoned. He is at the mercy of other people, and he has no sight. The text tells us that he, has been, he is blinded by this. So he's fallen pretty far from grace. And then we meet Ananias, who, it's so interesting. As much as Saul is introduced in the first nine verses of Acts chapter nine, there's one verse that tells us about Ananias, verse 10. That's all he gets. And all he gets is he's a disciple who lived in Damascus. He's just a guy following Jesus that happened to live nearby. He was in the neighborhood when this happened. Nothing fancy or special about Ananias as far as we know. But one thing we learn about him is he knows enough about Saul to have an argument with God. He knows enough about Saul to say, I don't want anything to do with this guy. I want nothing to do with him. So Ananias, this is where we transition to honor and influence. Ananias starts talking with God. And because he has a relationship with God, because God is not an idea, because God is a real living being that he and we can interact with, God and him have this dialogue, and it's, it is infused with honor. When, God, when Ananias says to God, I, don't, I, I hear you, but I don't want to do this, God listens and doesn't immediately shut down his argument. The first thing that Ananias says after God taps him on the shoulder is, here I am. That's, that's something that people say in the Bible when they're being obedient, when they're putting their best foot forward with God. We see this in 1 Samuel chapter 3, verse 4, here I am, Lord, I'm here to serve you. That's what that response literally means. We hear this from Mary when she's approached by the angel, and the angel says this crazy thing to her. This is in Luke uh, chapter 1. You will bear a son, and he will be the son of the Most High God. She says, I am the Lord's servant. Here I am. He responds with obedience. And so he honors God. We don't have to honor God first. God will choose to honor or not honor us. That's his prerogative. But when we choose to honor God first— when we say, here I am, it's like our hearts are just, we're we're ready to go. We're at the starting line. We're ready to run the race. When we say, here I am, we show up in such a way at the beginning of the conversation. And we say, you know what? I'm in. I, I don't know what you have for me, God, but I'm in. So God tells Ananias, go find Saul. This argument begins in verse 13, Ananias says, "Hey God, I don't know if you've heard this. Word on the street is Saul is a terrible person. He's evil and I don't want to be around him." Now, this is a moment when God could say to Ananias like, "How dare you? How dare you talk to me this way? How could you presume to tell me something? I'm God. Like, why would you ever waste your breath telling me something that I already know?" But God doesn't do that. He doesn't do that with people he loves. God honors Ananias' concerns because they have a relationship. They have an interactive, real-time relationship with one another. And just like we can do when we talk about our fears, Ananias names his fears to God. And I believe in Ananias' heart, he felt less fearful. The minute he started to say to God, I don't want to do this. I don't like this. It's almost like a part of him started to warm up to this idea. His heart thaws a little bit. And he goes well, maybe I could. Maybe I could step into this. Maybe it's not so crazy that God's asking me to do this. I am right down the road from where he says Paul is, Saul is. When we talk about our fears, they lose their teeth. Do you get what I mean? We like to give our fears teeth and claws, and we like to think that they are the most awful things, or I know the enemy loves to do this with me, you know, I'm the only person to ever face this challenge and I'm gonna mess it up. And isn't this terrible? No, when we name the things that we're afraid of, we, they lose their teeth, they lose their bite and we can right-size them. God honors Ananias by hearing him out, but then he challenges him. And this is where we go back to verse 15. Listen to it with me again. Verse 15 from Acts chapter nine. The Lord said to him, go, for he, Saul, is an instrument whom I have chosen to bring my name before Gentiles and kings and before the people of Israel. He's an instrument. Think of a surgeon who has all of uh, her tools laid out on a table before she goes into surgery. I need my instruments. I need everything lined up. I need all the stuff ready to go. That is how God is using Saul not in a way that's manipulative, not in a way that isn't in keeping with how God employs people for his purposes. He's saying, look, you see Saul as this murderer and this villain. I see him as a key part of my mission in the world. You didn't see this before, Ananias, but let me show this to you. That's honoring to Ananias. And God says, I have people to reach that you know nothing about. He uses these three terms, kings and Gentiles and the people of Israel. That's not an accident. Saul, who becomes Paul, is perfectly suited to reach these different echelons of society. Think of it as concentric circles, right? Like this outer ring of kings. These are people of great influence. These are the CEOs. These are the people at the top of your org chart. This is the president of your HOA or the principal at your school. Saul is going to reach those people, Ananias. Trust me, I know this. He's going to reach Gentiles, which is astounding because Paul did not like Gentiles. Saul was not a Gentile. And he didn't seem to care for the people who were poor and on the margins and the neighbors of those outside the house of Israel. He just seemed to be focused on those. And what God is saying is, I'm after those people too. And I'm going to use Saul as my witness. And he says the people of Israel are going to be reached by Saul. Well, of course they are. That's his people. That's his tribe. Those are the folks that know him, that read the same newspapers as him, that watch the same cable news network as him. People just like you, Ananias, people just like Saul are going to be reached. And guys, I mention all of that because that is always the work of ministry. That is the never-ending call of the church to as equally divide our time and energy toward reaching kings and queens and people in positions of power and reaching and serving the marginalized and the broken. And there's never been a more important time to do that than the days that we find ourselves in. So finally, let's talk about preparation. God is telling Ananias, I have a plan for Saul, and it will cost him. It's going to take him a little bit of blood and sweat to be ready to be my servant. This is what it says in verse 16. I myself will show him, I will, this is God speaking, I will show Saul how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. I will show him that this is not going to be an easy road. I will show him that this is going to hurt. And it's true because Saul didn't become a leader in the church by going to seminary. He didn't become a leader by working his way up the org chart, starting off in the mailroom, the most humble of circumstances, and then rising to the CEO's corner office. Nope, he didn't do that. He didn't go get his MBA. He became a leader in the church, as God said he would, through suffering. And that's both now and in the future. Now, in the text, Saul is suffering because he's starved, he's blind, he's dependent on people he doesn't know to help him out. And in the years to come, as he becomes the Apostle Paul, he will suffer some highlight reel, ESPN top 10 type suffering. He's going to be rejected by his own people whom he's poured his life into. He's going to experience conflict in the church that he loves, that he gets started. These churches that Paul helps create, that that he leads through the power of the Holy Spirit, they're not perfect places. There are places of deep division and conflict, and he's going to have to carry that as a leader. He's going to go to jail, and not jail like we might understand it today, Roman jail. He's going to suffer beatings. He's going to be attacked by crowds. He's going to get shipwrecked. All of these things are in his future, and yet what God says to him is, the purpose of these sufferings will be clear because it will be about my name. It'll be about telling people about the kingdom of God. It'll be about revealing the ministry and power of Jesus Christ through this man. And that's a remarkable thing when you think about it, because none of us ever understand the purpose of our suffering when we're in the midst of it. It is impossible to understand your own suffering, to, make a, to connect it to a purpose without, while you're still in the middle of it. We got to have it in the rearview mirror in order to assess the damage and figure out what, what was happening. How did I learn? How did I grow? I want you to think back to a time when you've experienced some suffering and some pain. And I get it. You know, it's, <laughs> this is not what everybody signs up to talk about in church. We want to hear something sort of positive and uplifting. Well, believe me, if we can't talk about this in church, where can we talk about Think about the last time you went through something difficult. How quickly were you able to understand the purpose of that, if there ever was a purpose that, that seemed to become clear to you? I believe the text support this. I believe my own experience support this. We cannot know for sure why we went through something difficult until long, long, long after the fact. One year ago was a season of pretty dire suffering for me and for my family. In July of last year, my dad was diagnosed with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And so after that diagnosis, uh, I started flying back and forth to Houston where he was in the hospital. And we spent the next six weeks, my family and I just trying to take care of him, trying to be present with him. He started chemotherapy in early July and he was fighting this battle. And all throughout this process, I felt this church, our church, Bethany Community Church, right beside me, right beside my family, caring for us. And I am so grateful. But if I had stopped in the midst of that to try to get a sense of like, I wonder what the outcome of this is going to be. I wonder how this is going to change me. I would never have been able to figure it all out. And you can't when you're in the midst of something difficult. So that word, maybe you need to hear that word this morning, is if you're in the middle of something difficult, If you are unemployed, if your home life is chaotic right now, don't stress about finding the purpose right now. Give yourself grace and know that that day will come, but it doesn't have to be in the moment. And what I want to say is walking through that season with my family, with our church around us, it was really hard. And when we arrived at the beginning of August, it became very clear that dad was not getting better and we needed to say goodbye. And there's hardly been a more painful time in my life than when we walked that out together. when the battle was over and there wasn't going to be any more chemo. And some of the worst pain that I've ever felt came during those days, but I could not make sense of the pain when I was in the midst of it. I was, I was numb, I couldn't really think straight. If you got any emails from me during that time, you should just delete them because they're probably just pure nonsense. Because that's what grief does to us. That's what pain and suffering does to us. But I felt hopeful. I felt hopeful even in the midst of saying goodbye to dad and the one year anniversary of his passing will be August 11th. So if you wanna pray for me and pray for my family that day, I would welcome that. But there's more that is being done in me and around me and through me because of that suffering. And when we disconnect suffering from it being purposeful, from God doing something through our suffering, we actually give it way too much power. To connect it to God's redemption, to connect it to God's transformation of our character, is actually to right-size our suffering and make it something that God actually intends it to be, which is useful, which is transformative. I wouldn't sign up for these things just on my own, but as a result of my dad's passing, I can tell you my heart is softer, especially toward people who who are in the midst of suffering. I'm gentler with my words. I have a connection now with people who've been through grief. I understand a deeper level of grief. I'm able to take the long view of things in my life. I don't get quite so hung up on the day to day I certainly don't have as much fear as I did a year ago because in comparison to my dad passing away, a lot of other things can happen, but they're not going to be nearly as tough as that. I have more joy in my life. Honestly, I do. Less fear, more joy, and I'm more focused on the things that truly matter, like my family and the pursuit of Jesus Christ. I'm not saying I'm doing any of this well or perfectly. Far from it. What I am saying is that there has been a purpose to the suffering that I've experienced, and that is what the text is telling us. There is a purpose in the suffering that Saul experiences. There is a purpose even for Ananias' suffering as he tries to take care of this religious fanatic who just happened to land on his couch and we read the rest of the scripture, we see the story of Saul playing out. We see how he's transformed. We see him become the Apostle Paul. It's not a finger snap. It's not overnight, but it happens. But Ananias, we don't see how he's changed. And I just want to leave us with this thought as we get ready to go to breakout rooms. Ananias has got to be changed through this. But we don't know how. And what if he's the kind of guy who after this experience with Saul, he deeply trusts God. After this experience with Saul, he lays his hands on Saul. He prays, brother Saul, receive your sight. He welcomes into the family. He is brought into the faith. And Ananias Forever is the guy that helped bring Saul, one of the most influential leaders in the history of the church, into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. Don't you think Ananias had the ability to trust people, to trust God after this experience? Don't you know he was a guy that had deep and abiding faith that I think every one of us longs for? And whenever he faced suffering after this, he knew, no, there's a purpose to this. This is going to be for the glory of God and for the good of my heart and my character. So church, as we get ready to go into breakout rooms, I just want to encourage you, Think back to that most recent time of suffering or a time of deep suffering. Don't be afraid to talk about it. Don't be afraid to bring it up in your breakout groups. And share with the folks in your group through the lens of the discussion questions, which you can find in your bulletin and we'll post in the chat just a moment, how that suffering has changed you. How have you grown? How have you learned more about who God is and who you are? Would you be willing to talk about God's purposes? with the folks that you'll have the chance to interact with in just a second, I hope so. As you go into the breakout rooms, uh, there'll be a leader for your room. So today, uh, the leader of the breakout group will be uh, a person whose birthday falls at the beginning of the year. So if you're born January through June, you are uh, in line to be the leader of the group today. If you're July through uh, December, uh, you're off the hook for this week. Uh, So pick a group leader, have that person introduce everybody, share names, and then go through those questions. Make sure everybody gets a chance to interact. We'd love for you to do that. Uh, And know that as you go into breakout rooms, you go with the power of the Holy Spirit to deepen this teaching. Let me pray for us. Lord, thanks for this time. Thanks for your word. Help us to better understand what you're up to in each of our lives. May we make sense, not just of suffering, but of all that you're doing, in and around and through us. Bless us as we go to our breakout rooms now. Use us and use this technology for your glory. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.